We were doing timed intercourse and all the natural methods under the sun. Every new month was a different witchcraft idea. You know, <laughs> like, should I put crystals on my stomach? <laughs> I got the maca powder, all the vitamins, all the supplements. It was just like... Yeah, you're like mixing tonics and elixirs and like doing a special spell. Like it's all very witchy. It it was a witch's cauldron in my vagina. (laughs) Been There Injected That is a TMI podcast about going through infertility and all the hormone injections, awkward moments, and nervous breakdowns along the way. I'm Elise Ash. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Been There Injected That. Today on the podcast, we have Millie Brooks, who is a fellow IVF warrior. She's a comedian and an actor based in San Francisco. And she's the podcast host of the amazingly funny Me, Myself, and Millie. Thank you so much for being here today, Millie. I really appreciate it. What, what? Thanks for having me, Elise. This is, this is a treat. I've been looking forward to this all week. How does it feel for you to be the guest rather than the interviewer leader of the podcast? Honestly, it's a lot less pressure. (laughs) A lot less pressure. All I have to do is show up and just answer questions. It's great. Yeah, it's not as much work on the other end. It's like, I'll just roll in and give my opinion about some shit and we'll call it a day. Exactly. And um, have a few laughs, tell a few stories. You know, it's it's pretty, it's low pressure. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. I know I was a guest on your podcast a few weeks ago and I really appreciated getting to chat then. And I can't wait to hear more about your story. I, I listen to your podcast quite a bit, but I'm excited to hear the story again and expose you to some new listeners probably too. I love it. I love um, unpacking my story. Every time I, I tell it over, I, I tell it a lot, but every time I tell it again, I discover new things. You know, it's kind of like a therapy session. So it's totally like therapy session, not to negate the importance of therapy. Please go see a a licensed mental expert, Uh, (laughs) but it's not to substitute for that. No, but I do think there's something to be said for sharing your story and telling it a bunch of different times and kind of learning where the natural peaks and valleys are. And sometimes people will ask a question and I'm like, huh, I never even thought about the, that before. I've been talking about infertility for years now. And every once in a while, there'll be a question. I'm like, huh, I don't know how I felt then. Exactly. Exactly. You recall different things about your journey that you, you had kind of forgotten too. Totally. And sometimes hearing somebody else's experience or story trigger something else for you too, where you're like, I also had an awkward run in with somebody at my clinic in the waiting room. Like you just forget yes. so much stuff that doesn't fall into the narrative that you're used to telling. A hundred percent. So starting at the beginning, Millie, I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself. I gave a little brief intro, but I'd love to hear, you know, your name, where you live, your profession, things you're you're into these days. Absolutely. Well, for those of you that don't know me, I am Millie Brooks. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I've lived here for about 10 years, but I am a Midwestern corn-fed girl at heart. I moved here after college. I went to school in Chicago, um, but grew up in Detroit. Theater is my main passion in life. I love comedy. I love theater. I love live entertainment, performing arts. That's my shtick. And 
I started a podcast almost two years ago called Me, Myself, and Millie that started off as a podcast that just covered general pop culture themes. And um, that was exhausting. (laughs) Why do you say that? Why was it exhausting? It's just exhausting to like watch E! Entertainment Live every day (laughs) and like keep up with the Kardashians. You know, like it doesn't really fill the cup. Um, So I started the podcast to help keep my creative juices going between theater projects. And it was great. We had like a wide range of topics. And then my husband and I started, we, we entered, you know, the phase of life where we were struggling to conceive. And so we went and saw a fertility doctor and as we all know, this stuff just becomes all-consuming. It's all you want to talk about. It's all you think about every day. Your friends start shifting and new circles start emerging in your life. You start thinking about things that you've never thought of before. You know, like, do I have too many harsh chemicals in my household? It changes everything about you. And so I was like, this seems like something I want to connect with more people on. And I want to learn more about this. I want to understand my own infertility journey. I want to heal from that a little bit. And I also want to help other people. So the podcast kind of shifted. Now it's just full-time infertility, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood. I call myself an infertility sleuth because I'm literally like hiding in the bushes with binoculars trying to figure this shit out. Um, (laughs) And now since COVID has happened, there's no theater going on. So the podcast is my main gig. It's my main, my main source of inspiration, of healing, of laughter, and talking with people that I, I just would never have, you know, our paths would never have crossed. It's such a great way to connect with so many different kinds of people, especially when we're all so housebound. <laughs> we're all kind yeah. of limited in our everyday interactions. So with technology, it's such a cool way to kind of keep things fresh. Like you said, keep talking to new people, keep your brain going. It's like, okay, I need to keep finding ways to connect, especially with people who are at home trying to figure this out, might not have very strong infertility communities or are trying to like build them right now. Exactly. That was me. Like before I kind of started talking about my journey, I was listening to podcasts. I was like gravitating towards those Instagram accounts and YouTube accounts where people were sharing their journey. And also people who were doing treatments, going through treatments that I was about to enter Mm -hmm. into. That was really helpful. Like watching people try all these products like Ava bracelet and other things, you know, and then seeing them try IUIs and then seeing them go through IVF. I needed that. I needed to watch somebody else's story unfold. Well, there's no real roadmap. And for everyone, that roadmap looks really different depending on your diagnosis, your age, where you live, what your health insurance looks like. So it's helpful to try to find these other cohorts almost of people who are like slightly ahead of you versus like, okay, my cycle buddies, quote unquote, it can be helpful to look ahead and be like, okay, what's next? Especially if you're somebody 
like me, who's very anxious and is like, what's plan A? What's plan B? I want to know what all my options are. What's this thing? What's this test? Should I be asking about this? It's like, let me see what everyone else is doing. And then I can have a better understanding of what I want to do. A hundred percent. And that was totally me. Like after every failed month of trying every failed treatment, I would rev the engine again. You know, I was like, okay, what are we going to do differently this month? And that was like what kept me going. And the only way I found those ideas were from people who were sharing their stories. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what you're saying, Millie, about like being an infertility sleuth. Like I think about it, we're like kind of like an infertility scientist. Like, okay, I'm going to like reduce my caffeine and alcohol. Like what are the results there? Now I'm going to like cut out gluten. Now, what does that look like? It's like, I feel like I was just doing all these mini, very unscientific experiments on myself that were (laughs) just a hundred percent based on my own perception. They were not very like measured at all. But to me, I was like, "Hmm, interesting. I feel less hormonal this month. Oh, interesting. My cycle's a little more this, but just like trying to notice and keep track and monitor. Oh, that was a hundred percent me. I felt like my body was a laboratory, you know, like recording basal temperatures and like I've I've never by the way, I I wasn't even able to keep up with that. Like <laughs> that lasted maybe six days. I mean, I was the worst scientist. I was the worst I'm somebody who you just don't want in your science lab. <laughs> You know, like, but it was, it gave me a sense of control. You know, it gave me a sense of control to be able to shift, shift the variables every month, you know, and um, it wasn't until we even started doing IVF that we really got a better look at what was truly going on. So let's take a pause for a second and kind of step back. So um, I'm curious if you, Millie, can really share a little bit about your fertility journey and the timing of everything and kind of how things started. Can you start at the beginning? Yes. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, My husband and I started talking about pulling the goalie in 2018, and we we played this game and it was something that we we kind of told people oh we're not not trying you know which was is such a weird thing to say it, for me the not not trying line is a way to convey that like we've we're not using protection but i haven't gone crazy yet i thought all we had to do was not use protection, and we would get pregnant. I was convinced that it would be very easy for us. Um, And then after that didn't happen for about three months, I was like, okay, we all have those period apps. I started using a period app to identify when I was ovulating, which was such crap. Like, (laughs) those things... Well, because you think it's like for your body, but it's not. It's really just using aggregate data of like what a random other 29-year-old woman, what her cycle looks like. It's not like specific for you. Yeah, it it, it absolutely – day 12 and day 14 came around, and I thought it was go time, and it wasn't. Um, And so I really – I was just like arms up in the air, like shaking my fists – 
at all the sex education that I've had in my life that were was like in the middle of your cycle. That's when you'll ovulate, you know? Well, and they scare, scare the crap out of you. They're like, if you look at a boy between day 12 and 14 of your cycle, you could get pregnant. If you touch oh, yeah. a toilet seat, if you go in a hot tub, like, I don't know. I just remember being very scared in middle school totally. and high school of like looking at anything, touching anything. I was like, oh my God. Oh, totally. So then like, as I was like perusing all these apps, one of the apps that I used was called Premom and they suggested using OPKs, which is, as we know, ovulation predictor kits. And it turns out I was ovulating around cycle day 20, cycle day 21. So I was completely missing the mark. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so we were doing timed intercourse and all the natural methods under the sun. And like I mentioned prior, like every new month was a different witchcraft idea. You know, <laughs> like should Let I put me... crystals on my stomach? <laughs> Do I need, you know, a Mayan massage? You know, it was just like so I tried everything. And I, I was willing to do anything. I got the maca powder, all the vitamins, all the supplements. It was just like... Yeah, you're like mixing tonics and elixirs and like doing yes. a special spell. <laughs> like it's all very witchy. It's all very witchy. Like it, it was a witch's cauldron in my vagina. <laughs> and we were just trying everything. And it wasn't until maybe after month eight or nine of trying naturally that I started to see an acupuncturist and she really helped hone my perspective on this stuff. My acupuncturist does like a half hour check-in of just bodily questions, digestion, sleep, all that stuff. And she is very well informed in the fertility world. So even talking to her about my husband's semen analysis. You know, my husband had gotten a semen analysis even before we started trying because there was a little bit of time when we were not not trying where I was like, why don't you just like go do this while we're kind of treading water right now? It's pretty simple for you. Let's just make sure we're hitting the ground running. And um, his semen analysis came back with low motility. So we were like, all right, again, he went on a vitamin routine as well. But after about 10 months, maybe I think month 11 of trying naturally seeing an acupuncturist, I was just like, I'm losing my mind. I'm yeah. losing my mind. I'm losing my, my mental health, my body. I feel like there's nothing I can do differently anymore on my own. You know, I need help. So I made an appointment with a fertility clinic and it was like the boutiques of fertility clinics. Like they had many different chains in San Francisco, very bougie. It looked like, you know, a hip tech place to go. You know? Yeah. Did they have like ping pong tables and they, they, kombucha they, on tap? Yeah. Some, they had sparkling water and like roomy books on the coffee table in the nice. waiting room. 
So Dwell magazine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it had like this retro vibe and plants hanging from the ceiling. It was just very, it was very like hip. And so I went to that and we did two IUIs there. And at this point, the doctor diagnosed us with unexplained infertility. Okay. And, um, you know, I had great AMH. I ovulated pretty consistently between 30 and 35 days. Even though my cycles were a little bit longer, I did always get a period. I consistently had an LH surge on my OPKs, no thyroid issues. So we were just unexplained at that point. You know, I remember my husband and I going to one of my baseline ultrasounds for my IUI. And we were like, can you tell us a little bit more about this unexplained infertility? And he gave us a lecture on stress and like how sometimes stress has a lot to do with infertility. And I was like, "Mm, okay, goodbye. We're done. We're done. Yeah. That's a weird response. I mean, having unexplained infertility is pretty common, Yeah. I don't think that's just something, oh, just go on vacation, just go take a nap that's going to cure it. So that's kind of... It it was such a... Oh, I hated that response. It just made my skin crawl. And he was looking directly at me when he was talking. And I think that's sometimes just a... There's a lot of gender bias in in this industry, too. And that's what, in my experience, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement here. But in my experience, I've had a lot of male doctors color me with this like aggro, intense, you know, stressed out woman, you know, who can't get pregnant and who's angry about it. Well, and I feel like even the way they deliver news is totally different depending on whether you're a woman or a man. Like I remember my husband getting his semen results back and it was like, don't worry, your swimmers are great. You're like doing awesome. Like, good job, man. Fist bump, you know, versus like, oh yeah, you have cysts on your ovaries and this is like a really big deal. Like, I don't know. It just felt like his stuff was so light and chill and trying to protect his ego and, you know, it's not your fault and all this stuff. And then for me, it was like, your body's broken. You're Yeah. That was the way I interpreted it. But I'm like, this is not even at all. Oh, I I had the same experience. It just felt like all these male doctors were telling me what I was doing wrong and what was wrong with me. And I just didn't like that feeling, you know? I didn't like that feeling. So anyways, we left that clinic. I had a couple consults with other doctors after that clinic, which kind of mirrored what I just said, you know, like a lot of just like broad brush strokes. You're a stressed out woman. You have unexplained infertility. One doctor mentioned PCOS to me because I had like some hair below my navel. And like, it just was like, wow, so many different people are telling me different things right now. And I can't get a handle on what's true and what's not. I think that's one of the most frustrating parts is you're like, you want a definitive diagnosis or an answer, like, here's why you're not getting pregnant. And I think for people, especially who have unexplained infertility, it's maddening because 
you want there to be an answer. You want there to be a problem to solve because otherwise you just feel like, am I hallucinating this? Am I just stressed out? Like what is going on? All my test results look normal, but I'm being told this by one doctor. I'm being told this by another doctor. What's going on? Yeah. I mean, I guess it just felt like they were grasping at straws. You know, they were trying to give us answers and they were just based off of like initial consults instead of like, you know, months of working with me. We'll be right back. Is infertility stressing you the F out? The emotional toll of doctor's appointments, hormone injections, answering questions from nosy aunts about when you're going to have kids. It's a lot. And while there are a bunch of great communities, blogs, support groups, and other resources out there, sometimes you just want to talk to like one person. One person who actually gets what you're going through, shares your values, and possibly even your diagnosis. That's why we created Fruitful, a fertility mentorship service that connects people trying to grow their families with a mentor. Someone who's been where you've been, but is now on the other side and available to offer emotional support. To learn more about Fruitful or sign up, visit fruitfulfertility.org. Or check us out in the App Store or Google Play Store. Now back to the show. Were you open with your friends and family about what was going on? Or were you able to get kind of emotional support during this time? Um, No, I wasn't. I was very in the closet about it. I was only talking to a few friends about it at this point. And I was going to a couple support groups through Resolve. We hadn't really shared it with our families at all. How do you share that information with your family when you don't even really know what's going on yet, too? For sure, because you know they're going to be asking you questions, and you're like, well, I don't even really know. So sometimes that would be more stressful is if you're sharing it with someone, they're like, well, what does that mean? Well, what does this mean? Well, what does this test mean? You're like, I honestly don't know. And now I feel stupid. (laughs) And like, should I be knowing? Like, now I'm trying to answer to you. I'm trying to figure this out. Like, what's going on? And after our initial consults, we found a doctor that we really loved. She was young. She was hip. Her name is Dr. Amy, the egg whisperer. She's very prominent in the fertility space. And we just loved her. We clicked with her. We were like, she gets us She's funny. She doesn't take this stuff like, you know, she wants to get us pregnant, you know? And so she was like, what are your goals? And I was like, my goal is to get pregnant before my 35th birthday. She's like, okay, we got to do IVF. Was that a tough decision for you? No, not at all. I was ready. I, we were convinced we needed IVF during these IUIs, which like, I know some people get pregnant off of IUIs and that's amazing but for us it was just a really small chance yeah because of our age my husband's semen analysis the chances weren't that great so we knew IVF was in our future and so we started IVF and we had a really successful first retrieval and you know you get an embryologist's report after your egg retrieval. And it basically breaks down your DNA and your partner's DNA. And essentially, my husband's numbers were so inconsistent that the conclusion our doctor gave us was male factor infertility. 
And if we were to continue to try naturally, it would have taken us seven years to get pregnant. Wow. So there was definitely sperm there, which we were so grateful about, but it needed a Petri dish to get to the egg. They used a technique that's called pixie, I guess it's called now. Essentially, they select the best looking sperm to do ICSI with. Mm -hmm. So they did that. We retrieved 34 eggs. I think 24 of them were fertilized. Wow. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then we sent nine off to PGS testing and um, seven of them came back normal. So we were like, these are great numbers. You know, we, we finally figured out what the issue was, you know. And I look back on this time and I think to myself, God damn it. You know, like I was doing so much to try to control what was going on in my body. And that's not where the problem even lied. Yeah, I think that's why it's so helpful to just like go see a doctor, get as much information you can, because I I was literally running in circles. How did your husband respond to the news that the issue was with his sperm? Like, how did he process it, that information? Did it affect your relationship or your dynamic at all? Now, this is also, this is back in in. May when I received this news and this was still when they weren't allowing partners to go to appointments. So I had to hear this news from the doctor and deliver it to him after. Oh my God. So they didn't call him like you were basically the one who had to be like, so your sperm is. Yeah, Yeah. babe. Love you. Um, Here's the thing. Yeah. That was the hardest piece. That type of information needs to be told from a doctor, you know? Yeah. Um, That's really hard to put on the partner to deliver. Well, and if you you think about the roles being reversed, I mean, they would never have him come and be like, oh, you need to tell Millie that her... Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, can you deliver this news to to your wife? explain what this hormone means and what this means for her fertility. Like, that's kind of weird. It was a really intense dynamic. Looking back on it, I think I would have done things a little bit differently. Like I would have asked my doctor to please call my husband and share this news with him. I don't want to be the one to tell him this. This is so hard. But, you know, like I told him this information when I got home and he just like his jaw dropped to the floor. We were both in disbelief because... We were told from so many doctors that his semen analysis wasn't the issue and that he has sperm, but technically, if you have less than 15 million sperm post-wash, you are considered in the low count range and your chances of conception are diminished pretty severely. Yes, I know it only takes one, blah, blah, blah. But you need a lot to just get through that gate. So you had seven embryos that were genetically normal. Did you decide to do a fresh transfer or you decided to wait and then do a frozen transfer? 
we decided to do PGS testing on the embryos, which doesn't lend itself to a fresh transfer. So we waited to do a frozen embryo transfer. And there was a few tests that my doctor was considering before we got the PGS testing results. If we had come back with a lower number of normal embryos, she would have wanted to check off a lot of boxes before we did a transfer. But since we were really, really lucky and we came back with seven, she was like, let's just do a transfer and see what happens. So we did a transfer and it worked. And I'm currently 20 weeks pregnant with our first frozen embryo baby. It worked. It worked. It worked. And it typically doesn't. Like, we were not expecting it to work on the first time. That was one of the things I Googled early on. Like, what are the chances of IVF success rates on the first transfer? Well, and had you ever seen a positive pregnancy test before? Never. I had seen like a couple of evaporated lines, which I wasn't quite sure if they were a chemical pregnancy or not. But let me tell you, I have that black light app that you just put over the pregnancy tests. I've totally gone down that rabbit hole. But yeah, this was the first time that like the line was clearly there and very strong and getting stronger. You know, we were a really solid case for IVF. And so I honestly, I'm really glad we didn't waste, not waste, but for me, it was wasting more time doing IUIs did not make sense for me. Yeah. I mean, we made a similar decision. We actually didn't do any IUIs. We went right to IVF. And we made that decision because I have endometriosis. The IUI wasn't going to be able to circumvent that. We had very low odds of an IUI working and we were paying out of pocket. So for us, we were like, we'd rather put the $1,500 or whatever towards IVF instead of another couple months, instead of getting our hopes up and meds and all this stuff. Like for us, that was the decision we made that worked for us. But I understand why some people who are hesitant to do IVF or might not be in the financial position to be able to do that would cling on to the IUIs for a little bit longer. Exactly. Exactly. And I think like IUIs kind of, I don't know, for me, they were an entry level treatment that got me more comfortable with the idea of IVF, you know? Well, and you can Um, say you're doing your due diligence. You can check your box. You can say, okay, we did. This was the path. We did all the things. We're not being dramatic. We're not jumping to anything intense. Like we're doing everything the way we're supposed to be doing. Check, check, check. Exactly. Exactly. Do you think that your attitude about your transfer and IVF changed because of all the people you were speaking to on your podcast, like, do you think that affected your lens of going through infertility, hearing all the, these other stories? Absolutely. It put my expectations in check. I had really low expectations for IVF. And I think that's just because I, I've heard so many stories of women, in, not even just in the Instagram infertility space, but going to support groups. You know, women doing eight, nine, ten rounds of IVF before conceiving. 
I was like, this is just going to be another phase. This is just going to be another chapter. And we could find a lot more issues. It could be like opening Pandora's box, you know? And so this was a shock. It was a surprise. And it was kind of nice not being very hopeful about it because that element of surprise and like, oh my gosh, this actually worked was what I imagine people when they conceive naturally it happening. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, wow. Wow, I'm pregnant. Yeah. Versus like, yeah, they transferred an embryo into my uterus 14 (laughs) days ago. Of course I'm pregnant. Like, yeah, yeah. But you still have the like, holy shit, it worked. Science. Yep. So as a professional comedian, actor, storyteller, did you find yourself using humor at all to kind of get through some of this hard stuff during infertility? All the time. It was the only way I was able to keep going, I think. This stuff gets so heavy. It paralyzes you, you know? And I quickly realized that if my grief and my trauma was paralyzing me, I wasn't going to get to my end goal. I'm not saying you shouldn't process your emotions and your feelings throughout this journey. I think you have to. But for me, when I was able to process my grief and trauma around this, when I was able to speak honestly about what was going on, it allowed me to also make fun of it too and make fun of myself and make fun of this process. And everything about this is so serious. You know, it just feels so serious. It's serious and and it's also ridiculous. It's like, hey, go into this room pull down your pants, let a stranger shove this thing up your vagina. Like when you think oh, of totally. eight seconds, you're like, this is insane. And like, what, what even is this process of my partner having to go into a room to masturbate where like thousands of other men have got like, oh, totally. What is happening? Just, it's ridiculous that like my doctor has a better relationship with my vagina than some relationships in my life. You know, like <laughs> it's just, all of it is absurd. From the things you even do, the, the, the things you think, the things you Google, the things you, the things you put in your body, like it's all just a crazy comedy of errors. It totally is. And then you hear these stories. I had a friend who gave herself a vaginal steam at home and got second degree burns, like the whole pot of water. <laughs> well, she had to go to the emergency room. It was actually like really scary. Like she oh, really no. burned herself. But it's one of those things where you're like, oh, my God, you have to laugh because you're like, I mean, I hope your friend is okay, but that is hilarious. I mean, and it's clearly something I would do because I did look up vaginal steams, you know, to help with pregnancy. Totally. And I, I mean, I think that's why also there are so many infertility plot lines in comedies and in like sitcoms and on Friends and in Sex in the City and like. Because it is hilarious, like Charlotte getting acupuncture and then having to like walk into the waiting room with little needles all over her. Like, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And then like Miranda being told that her ovary is lazy. Yes. Like, as soon as I watched that episode, I was like, like a lazy eye, you know, like her ovary is like a lazy eye. Like it goes off in one direction. Like, it's all comedy to me. 
it is all comedy. And and I think that's why also like, it's so awesome to see, especially in like the Instagram world, all these infertility memes and people sharing all this stuff. That's like the shared vocabulary and understanding that is helping us process our trauma and what's happening, but we're able to do it in a way that just feels like, oh my God, can you believe this? Totally. And I think it's healing. For me, when I was able to make fun of this stuff, I felt like I won. Like it didn't dominate me. It was like, I have the last laugh here in fertility. I, I will have the last laugh. Thank you so much, Millie, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and using your podcast too as a platform to help spread awareness. I think it's so cool that you made the decision to kind of pivot on the podcast to help raise awareness and share even more stories. That's so awesome. Thank you. This has been such a hoot. I love it. I love you, Elise. And I'm, it's great what you guys are doing for the infertility space too. And I'm, I'm so glad we were able to connect. Me too. Doing what we can. And good luck with everything the rest of the pregnancy. Fingers crossed everything is uneventful and hilarious and according to plan. And we will Appreciate be thinking it. positive thoughts for you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. In There Injected That is produced by Fruitful Fertility and hosted by myself, Elise Ash. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe to get updates, and visit our website at fruitfulfertility.org. Thanks for listening.